Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Linda Adier Grant on February 22, 2021. Linda's ancestors are from the city of Nariz in Iran and accepted the teachings of the Bab and later became Baha'is. The Bab was the prophet forerunner of Baha'u'llah and Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. She received her PhD from Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health and worked in the field of public health teaching at Johns Hopkins and at Emory University. She's a children's book author, and we discuss her two children's books in the interview. I started the interview by asking how many generations back does Linda's family go as Baha'is and before that, Bobbies? The first members of our family who came across the teachings of the Bob were in a small village. The name of the village is Neriz. It's in the country of Iran, and they were taught the teachings of the Bab. The Bab was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, and together the Bab and Baha'u'llah are the twin divine teachers of this day. So it was actually one of the early followers of the Bab. His name was Vahid. He came to the city of Neriz, and he shared the teachings of the Bab, and it was during that period it was the efforts of Bahid that allowed some members of our family to hear of those teachings and they became Babis and then later they became Baha'is when Baha'u'llah revealed his message. And so those are the earliest members of our family who became Babis and then Baha'is. And so we're talking about the middle to late 1800s? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It was in the 1840s, mm-hmm. 1840s and 50s. That period, the Bob actually declared his mission in 1844 and was martyred in 1850. And during that period, it was a tremendous period in the history of Iran in that the teachings of the Bob, it was the spirit of the age. And so it attracted people from all parts of the country and from all different parts of society, there was an allegiance to the teachings of the Babi faith and later of the Baha'i faith. It was teachings that called for a renewal of God's connection with humanity. The response was, to a great extent, a response of oppression and of persecution. So many of those early believers sacrificed everything, including their lives. And it's, it's a pattern that we see throughout the annals of religious history that, you know, these early believers are paving the way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess, for the rest of us. You mentioned that there was serious persecution of the Babis at that time. Were any of your family subjected to that persecution that you are aware of? And what was it like for your family back then in that regard? They were very much directly impacted and I mean, I think the vast majority of my ancestors were martyred and put to death for their beliefs. My interest in writing 
was very much inspired by my dad. And he, in recent years, has also gotten really excited about writing. We have lots of very common areas of interest. And he has, in the past few years, written a book about our family and about not just our family, but about the early believers in Nereus that included members of our family and their stories of their heroism and of their sacrifice and of their resilience over generations. And what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Awakening. And your father's name is Hussein Ahdia, and he has, in collaboration with one of his very wonderful friends, Hilary Chapman, written the book Awakenings. You know, I had heard those stories. I can't remember ever not knowing those stories, but I had never been able to read them in English. You know, I had heard them from my grandparents and other relatives. I feel like that the book that my dad and Hillary wrote was a great gift to me and I feel like to my children as well. In the Baha'i faith, there's this concept of independent investigation of truth, and Baha'is consider the age of 15 as the age of maturity when they take ownership of the Baha'i faith for themselves. Can you remember a time or a process in which your faith became less about the faith of your family and more about the faith becoming your personal faith? What a great question. You know, there are so many awesome principles of the Baha'i Revelation. There is a fundamental belief in the nobility of each of us as a creation of God and our capacity to be able to be attracted to God and to be able to recognize truth for ourselves. And that applies regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, and also of age. As you mentioned, 15 is the age of spiritual maturity in the Baha'i community and according to the Baha'i teachings. And so my parents were very committed they adhere to the teachings of Baha'u'llah and believe in Baha'u'llah. So, you know, our home was one in which we would say prayers. They observed Baha'i laws and we participated in Baha'i community life. But then as I approached the age of 15, I remember very clearly having very, very frank and open conversations with my parents about this approaching moment of my life that, you know, I you know had the spiritual discernment to be able to decide for myself whether or not I believed that Baha'u'llah was a manifestation of God and if I wanted to follow the laws and adhere to the principles of the Baha'i faith. And so fortunately, like I, I actually was growing up in New York City, which I think was really a blessing because all around me were people of other faiths on my block, in my school. And, you know, I remember my mom very deliberately taking me to uh, several different churches of my friends. And I went to many bar mitzvahs and synagogues and I went to a mosque. And I, I, I think there was like a very deliberate intentionality around exposing me, not just in a token kind of way, but like really allowing me to be exposed then to decide for myself at 15 that I believed in the teaching, in, in not just the teachings, but like believed in like the claim of Baha'u'llah to be the manifestation of God for this day. And now as a parent, like I don't think I, you know, not, my kids are 14 and 16. I have great respect that I don't think I could have had if my kids weren't in this age. Because, you know, when you believe in something and then 
you believe it really deeply in your heart, of course, you want your kids to have that same love. But I'm so happy how they approached it with me because it created an example for how my husband and I are approaching it with our children too. Not exerting pressure, any of that, just really allowing them to come to that understanding and make that decision for themselves. I think it's really critical. So Linda, when did writing become an interest for you? I think it was about three years ago. It was actually my dad and Hillary had just published or were drafting a book about Tahere. My kids at that point were like maybe 12, 13. They were junior youth, like 12, 13 years old. And I actually read part of the book to them. And it was actually, it was inspiring for them, but it was like kind of hard for them to understand it. You know what I mean? Because I just felt like it wasn't, it was written for an adult audience and not for like 11 and 12 or 13. It wasn't written for junior youth or for children. And so I thought like my mom's name is Tahereh and my dad has always been interested in the life of Tahereh. Tahereh was one of the earliest adherents and followers of the Bob, was the only woman from among that like first cohort of 18 individuals who accepted the teachings of the Bob. So I had heard about her and I thought I had told my children about her, but I realized that I hadn't really read books to my kids about Tahereh when they were children. That's when the idea kind of came that like, wow, like I love books and I love children and I love history and maybe there's like something that be like an area of endeavor for me. So those are the circumstances that led to writing a book about Tahereh. So both of your published works are with Anna Myers. So how did you end up collaborating with her and what was your collaboration process like with those books? Oh my goodness. I love all of your questions. Okay, so someone asked me about that a few days ago, sent me an email and asked me about like how Anna and I connected. And I really feel it was like a true (laughs) gift from God, you know, that our paths crossed because it has been a true honor of my life to have the opportunity to collaborate with her. Anna lives in New York City and is a wonderful everything, mother, artist, servant of humanity. She's also a Baha'i. I first heard about her because she did the signage, like all the artwork when it was the bicentenary. It was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Baha'u'llah in 2017. And she was asked by the local spiritual summit of New York City to do the art for those holidays. My dad knew about her and also one of my dad's very good friends, Tatiana Jordan, knew her personally. And so Tatiana introduced Anna to me and we just started talking and our hearts connected right away. Yeah, so I felt very fortunate that we were able to work I Love My Name together. It was published by Bellwood Press, which is an imprint of the U.S. Publishing Trust. Anna and I met and we suggested the possibility of like collaborating together on this book. So when we heard that it was going to be possible, I was beyond thrilled and overjoyed. The process was amazing. Like she has an incredible mind for that book. She read the manuscript. I had a, a few very vague thoughts that I had included when I submitted the manuscript, but she really brought the story to life in a way that I could have never imagined. I'm just, I'm looking at the book right now and 
she conveys somehow the spirit of the main character. It's a kind of like a book within a book. The story is, is like a young girl. She's named Tahere, and she, with her teacher, reads a book about Tahere. The real Tahereh's story is embedded in this fictional story. So the fictional character, I just love this little girl that she sort of created the images for. And then Tahereh, the modern day, like little fictional eight-year-old Tahereh, learns the story of her namesake, like the the real Tahereh. And then those images are also set in Iran 200 years ago. Of course, we want to be very reverent because this was like a very distinguished soul in the history of humanity and I think she just really beautifully captured both the spiritual strength of Tahara and then also the heroism of her life. It is actually an area that we worked really close with my dad because there were questions that arose. We know a lot about Tahara but we don't know some of the details that we maybe would have wanted to put into a picture book. She was very conscious. And I think this is the part that I think my respect for her, though it wasn't already really high, it got even more incredible because I think she was so faithful to just making sure that the illustrations were consistent with what we knew. The first illustrations of the modern day character, she could have curly hair. We have her liking to ride her bike. We could use so much of our imagination in describing her but then the the sections of the book the young modern 21st century Tahara is learning about her namesake we were very committed to being historically accurate for those images and of course for the, the text associated with those images as well. Now how did you come up with the concept of the story about the second grader whose name is Tahare who had to endure being made fun of because of her yeah. name within the story of her namesake, Tahere, yeah. from the yeah. 1800s. I'm thinking about the letter of the living Tahere. There are some things about her childhood that we know, like we know that she was not able to go to school. We know that her parents were committed to her education and that she could have studied at home. And this was very unusual for a child to be so curious and so intellectually driven. I did not come across a lot of other details about Tahereh's childhood. And we thought, especially since we were making a picture book and it was targeted to early elementary, we kind of felt like children like to read about children. (laughs) So that's where the idea emerged that maybe if we create a kid who's in second grade, we don't name the country, but you get the sense that she's a contemporary to the children who are reading this book and that maybe that could be a way that they could get attached to her. She likes mangoes. She likes to play soccer. She goes to school. And then that's a way for a kid living right now to connect to her. And then that would be a way to draw them in and be like, oh, she has this name that's very unique and no one else has. Like sometimes she gets teased at school and that would be a way for kids to relate. And then once they had related to her and could connect to that her as a main character, then they could accompany her on the journey of learning about the person after whom she is named, learning about the heroine Tahere from the 1800s and her sacrifice and her bravery and her love for truth. She is able to then really appreciate her name in a way that she couldn't before. So this experience is hard for her and painful for her, but it actually leads her 
to a love for her name that is much deeper than she had ever had before. So I think that was something that we were excited to convey. And then in terms of the issue of names, you know, I have a very easy name, Linda. I've never had any difficulty in anyone pronouncing my name or learning my name. But my mom is named Tahere, and my dad's name is Hussein. So I was around a lot of conversations of people asking my parents how to spell their name or how to say their name or asking them if they could use nicknames for their names especially my mom with Tahere taking every opportunity she could when people asked her about her name to share the story of Tahere and to use it as an opportunity to share her story with others. And then we have two children. Our daughter is Bahia and our son is Thomas. So our daughter, Bahia, really loves her name. I feel so grateful. The idea of loving your name is a little bit based on her and She's also named after a very special person in history. It's Bahia Khanum, and Bahia Khanum was the daughter of Baha'u'llah. I hope maybe there'll be a book about Bahia Khanum sometimes for children, but she also just was an incredible source of strength and of love. And so I think because my daughter grew up knowing stories about who Bahia Khanum was, even when a lot of people ask her how to spell her name or how to say her name or mispronounce her name, it actually amazingly never bothered her. She never had an experience like what Tahara had. I'm really grateful for that. And I think it's because she knew who she was named after that allowed her to have this. So I brought that into the story too, that like when you know the meaning of your name, it gives you a source of strength and of joy. So I wanted to also really celebrate unique names <laughs> in the book. And so I thinking of my daughter, some of the things in the book, she loves to write her name. Even to this day, fine, our daughter has written her name and she kind of likes the whys and she likes the way the letters go. And so anyway, we tried to bring that into it also in a way that would be accessible to children. We lived in Ethiopia for four years when our kids were small and they attended an international school. I think there were, at one point, I think there were children from over 70 countries at the school. So there were a lot of beautiful and very unique names. And I think that that for her, in addition to knowing about the person she was named after, I think also during those formative years of being four, five, six, seven, being in a classroom of kids, all of whom, for the most part, had a unique name in the school. It just became normal. To be unique became normal. And I think that was a really precious experience for her as well. So another book you wrote with Anna Myers is called Together Even When We're Apart, My Neighborhood Stories of the COVID-19 Pandemic. What inspired you to write this book? So Anna and I, we heard, I don't even know how I first heard about it, but there was a contest, like a writing contest that was announced April of 2020. So this is like just weeks after the World Health Organization has declared that there is a pandemic. And there was a contest announced for children's books. And it was a super tight turnaround. I think the they wanted submissions like within two weeks or three weeks. And so we decided, why don't we do this? Why don't we just try? We're working on another book, but it seems so timely. And so the idea emerged working together and submitting a draft to this contest. And so right around the time that we decided to do that, there were several communications from 
the Universal House of Justice. The Universal House of Justice is an elected body, an international body that the Baha'is all around the world elect every five years. And they are a source of guidance and of love and encouragement for Baha'is all around the world. Coronavirus was impacting many countries, but here in the United States, our children's schools and our local schools closing, I think that the impact of COVID really started to be felt here in mid-March. So just a week after the schools closed, a letter was sent by the Universal House of Justice to the Baha'is of the world. And in this letter, and in subsequent letters that came in the following months, there were several themes. I just, they resonated so deeply in my soul, like the House of Justice shared with the Baha'i world, and of course, with all the peoples of the world, that the pandemic, we would get through it, and that at the other end, we would be stronger. And they also shared that during this time, our unity could be expressed in action. We know that we want unity, but how do you know that there's unity? Like one theme that I took from those messages in March and in April from the Universal House of Justice was that we know there's unity because we act in a way that expresses our unity. Another theme that those letters imprinted on my soul was that the pandemic is allowing us to have a better appreciation and understanding of our implicit oneness that we're interdependent. So I mentioned all of those themes because, you know, we were with my children and in our community, we were studying those letters and trying to understand like, how could we respond at this time that all around us, people are suffering and people are struggling. So this now comes back to the contest that we landed on an idea of a manuscript of a submission for the contest that would like bring together these themes of, we will get through this, let's be hopeful that we are unified and we could show our unity through our action. The importance of interdependence, the importance of solidarity, the importance of community. So the idea came up that it could be a series of stories based on, again, a young child. Because I think kids like to read about kids and we wanted it to be a picture book. So like a young boy who's living during the pandemic and he is talking about what it's like for him and how he is learning to be unified with his neighbors, how he is finding hope through acts of service from and to his neighbors. So we tried to then like write stories that would, to the extent that our capacity allowed, try to bring some of these concepts, write about them and illustrate about them in a way that would be accessible to like a seven or eight year old kid. So we were super excited about the draft. It was really a very rough draft because two weeks was really short to like put it all together. We didn't win the contest, <laughs> uh, but that was okay. And actually the books that did win the contest are so tremendously awesome. I think one thing that's great is I think there may have been hundreds of submissions and you know a few won the contest, but I'm pretty sure that many of those authors who submitted for the contest then went on to publish their books. So I think the contest created all these books that may have otherwise not been written came to life through this event. Then we had the time. We then spent a few months going back and editing the text and then, of course, expanding the illustrations. We're excited to write it like a poem. Like it's not really a poem, but like a short narrative, like a short little essay. The main character, his name is Amari, A-M-A-R-I. And I could tell you about 
why we named him Amari later. Amari, we get introduced to him and to his family. And then through his eyes, we meet about 10 or 12 of his neighbors. You know, some are children, some are parents, some are doctors, some are grandparents. From him, learn about like how they are experiencing the pandemic. And it's all fictional. I mean, it's truly fictional. But in my mind, as I thought about him, I grew up in New York City. And I was actually born at Elmhurst Hospital in the neighborhood of Jackson Heights. Also around this time, the epicenter of the pandemic was in New York City. And within New York City, like a huge burden was being felt in Queens and specifically at this hospital that I was born at. And so even though I continued to live in Queens till I was 14, but I lived in Jackson Heights until I was five, maybe, but I'd gone back there many times. And so like, I thought about the apartment building that I lived in. I don't remember it from when I was four, that I've gone back and seen, and I can visualize the apartment buildings around me. And, you know, this is an area of Queens that's super diverse, ethnically and racially. We don't say anywhere that it's New York or that it's Queens or that it's Jackson Heights. In my heart, I was thinking of that type of place. And we said, like, why don't we just have everyone living in a building instead of it being like a separate homes? Like maybe instead of like people living on a city block, like in different structures, like structural buildings, maybe they could all live in the same building. And then that would also like help with this idea that they can't be together in the same room, but they are kind of together because they're in one building. They really are one family. I think the pandemic is what helps them to realize how interconnected they are. And even though they have different aspirations and different hopes and different situations, we really tried to convey how this microcosm comes together, learns to live in a way that's consistent with how a family, not a nuclear family, but it's like a family of neighbors, they start to act that way and think that way. So during the time that we were writing this book, we live in Decatur, Georgia, and I live in a cul-de-sac. This book was not written in a vacuum. Both Anna and I, we were with our neighbors experiencing schools being closed and parents having to work and virtual learning and like the unknown about masks and all of these things. And I think that many of the themes that we were trying to incorporate, a lot of the learning I had was experiences I had like just within my own community, both my city and then even my block. Neighbors really came together to support each other and to check in with each other and to connect in a way that I actually had not experienced before the pandemic. So I saw people volunteering to deliver medicine to people who couldn't get out and food being cooked. My kids started tutoring some of our neighbors. I think there were so many examples of service that we saw that we were able to be a part of and also that we just were able to witness happening. And I feel like those stories were really like the water, those firsthand experiences. Anna was having them also. So I feel like for both Anna and I, those firsthand experiences, seeing neighborhoods showing solidarity, the spirit of those stories and some of the details found their way into together even when we were apart. Also, I think another thing that we were excited about is we also wanted it to be a book that would help children with some terminology. We were careful in that we were writing this at a time that like, you know, the scientific community is learning about COVID. So we were conscious not to put in things 
that weren't certain that we didn't have enough data about. Initially, we thought to like have a like a glossary in the back of terms, but then we decided that you know, the science was moving so fast. We decided to include a website for the most up-to-date information about COVID-19. Please visit the World Health Organization website. Our two goals really were that it would give hope and that it would give ideas for a child about how they could be of service. And then the second was that it really would communicate some knowledge about like basic facts about COVID that would help a child to understand what's happening. Like, why am I not going to school? Why am I wearing this mask? Why am I washing my hands so much? And we wanted some of that knowledge to also be communicated. And actually, I'm so happy because like one of my friends said that after reading this book, her son now is so excited to wash his hands. <laughs> As someone like with a background in public health, like that made me so happy, you know, because I think we're always trying to think about how we can impact behaviors. I think it's much harder than we wish it was. And so I, that was a really happy text that I received from this friend. He now likes to wash his hands. <laughs> Would you like to read an excerpt from Together, even when we're apart? Sure. Before I read an excerpt from the book... You know, maybe I can just give a little bit of background. The first draft, the main character, we didn't name him. I just loved working with Anna. So many interesting conversations we had together. You know, we talked about would not giving a name to him, would that help more people be able to relate to him? Um, but then we thought like, well, maybe giving him a name actually will allow people to relate to him. Mm. In the end, we consulted. and It was just such a gift to be able to consult, you know, about these creative decisions together with Anna. We decided to, we would give him a name, and we decided to name him Amari, a variation of the name Amare. So the character in the book is A-M-A-R-I. It was inspired by Amare with an E at the end, and that is the family name of our tremendously dear friends in who we were together with in Ethiopia. Gail and Zalalam, and they have five children. They moved to Ethiopia a few years before we did, and they're still there. And they have started a school, are just making such a tremendous contribution to the well-being of children in Ethiopia. And they're really are the reason, I think, why we were able to, like, move to Ethiopia. And they just are very dear friends of our children. So I think that so many of the concepts that we wanted to convey in the book are qualities that we felt exemplified by their family. So that's how he got his name, was inspired by them. The book is short, one-page, little summaries. We first have one about Amare himself, and then we have about 12 other neighbors that we are introduced to. So I'll just read the introduction to Amare, and then maybe I'll just pick two others that I share. Okay. Uh, first, actually, it's a little bit about the building itself. The name of the building where Amari lives is the McAllister. The McAllister is a red brick building on the corner of Central Avenue and 62nd Street. It was built long ago, even before my parents were born. It takes us five minutes to walk to the bus stop and two blocks to walk to the playground. It is also my home and the home of my neighbors. Let me tell you a little bit more about the McAllister and the people who live here. My name is Amare. 
My name is Amare. I'm seven and I live with my mom, my dad, and my new baby sister. I used to go to school and play with my friends at the park, but then people all over the world got really sick with COVID-19 or coronavirus. Now my family and neighbors are keeping each other safe by staying inside, by washing our hands, by wearing a mask, by coughing and sneezing into a tissue, by not touching our face, by going to school in new ways. Sometimes I feel lonely and bored, but I remember to be grateful for what I have and to keep myself and others safe and teach my baby sister something new and look for something helpful to do around the house. And then there's, as I mentioned, like several stories about other neighbors. So maybe I'll just read two of them. Uh, this one is Kimmy and her brother Kendrick. Kimmy and her brother Kendrick lived with their aunt and uncle in the apartment above me. They used to go to work early and come home late. Kimmy worked at the airport and brought me cinnamon gum. Kendrick worked at the movies and told me which ones were coming up. I used to hear their footsteps early in the morning and late at night, but now I don't because they lost their jobs. This is a big problem because they help pay the rent. Last night, I made the mac and cheese and left it outside their door. I wish I could do more. I wish their footsteps would wake me up again so they would be back at work. I'll read one more. Sammy's mom. Sammy's mom lives downstairs, and his mom is a doctor. When she leaves for work, even the birds are asleep. At night, I see her out of my window when she comes home, tired but full of grace. Those are the words that describe her face. Every day, she takes care of patients who are very sick, and every day, she puts the lives of others before her own. Every night at 7 o'clock, we open our windows and clap and cheer for her and everyone working in hospitals who are called the first responders. People in their cars blow their horns to say thank you. On my first day of learning at home, she put a note with her phone number on everyone's door. She told us to call her if we have any questions. It makes me feel safe and also proud that she lives in my building. Maybe Warren, if it's okay, I'll read one more. Actually, one that like for both Anna and I, I think like all of these stories, they're fictional, but they were, I think, very much inspired by things that we saw happening around us, both in our like immediate neighborhoods and also things that we were hearing about on the news, like happening around the world. I'm sure just like you, like, you know, we're hearing stories of solidarity and of people like reaching out and people doing things for others. So we tried to bring into the book as many of those stories that we heard of people being of service to others. So this one is like really special to me because during the pandemic, my only niece lives in Texas and every day for a pretty long period of time before she actually started going back to, you know, in-person school, we would actually read together. And it like was this beautiful time. It was such a precious 20 minutes or 15 minutes of my day was reading together with her. So this story that I'm going to read now was inspired by those sessions that we had together reading. Okay. Lisu. Lisu is my next door neighbor. She is five and we go to the same school. She misses her teachers and her classmates. 
her mom reminds her to be hopeful and that it is okay to be scared or sad or angry or confused. She reminds Lisu to mix those feelings with thankfulness. Her teacher told her mom to practice reading with her every day. She is getting better at it. Her mom says it is like jumping rope. You need to practice, even when it's hard, and then all of a sudden it is easy. To make reading more fun for her, her mom asked me to help. Lisu calls me every day at one o'clock and we read to each other. For me, it is my favorite part of the day. So Linda, where can people find your books? They're both on Amazon and on mm. Barnes and Nobles. And also you can go to the Baha'i Bookstore online. They're also available. Together, even when we're apart, could also be downloaded from Amazon on your Kindle. So it's available as an ebook as well as a paperback and a hardcover too. So do you have another book in the works? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're working on a few things. Anna and I together are working on a few. I really am so excited about bringing individuals from history, bringing their stories into the hearts and hands of young people. So I submitted a, a manuscript about Thomas Breckwell. Actually, my son is named after him. He was a early Baha'i, I think maybe the first British Baha'i. So his story is really beautiful. And then also, together with Anna, we're also working on a book about Dean Gillespie and Enoch Alinga. They actually met, which is really neat. They met in New York City. So it's a, a story about their meeting together. Another project that I'm collaborating with a, another wonderful illustrator, her name is Reina, is a story about Fujita. And Fujita was also a very early Baha'i. He was from Japan, and he was just an incredible human being who became a Baha'i here in the United States, but then was of service at the Baha'i World Center in Israel. And there are like really great stories about him. So we've written a children's book about that. And we're working together with Reina and through George Ronald. There's so many other interesting individuals that I'm trying to learn more about and read more about. So Linda, thank you so much for taking this time to tell us about your work. It's great. Wonderful. Wonderful. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Linda Adier Grant, author of two children's books, I Love My Name and Together Even When We Are Apart, My Neighbor's Stories of the COVID-19 Pandemic. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of Bahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel of Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. If we knew, we would yearn To do the best we can With each passing moment Know that each of life's offerings To be earned If we knew If we knew 
at each turn What each step would bring We would prize the soft whispers Of the ones who would wish us Only good if we knew If we knew from the start how it was We would realize that nothing is lost And I believe we'd strive whatever the cost And I One by one, we'll come home, be together One by one, we'll come home, where we'll stay There's a star in the dark, waiting for us There's a rose at the close of the day If we knew what we'll learn At the long journey's end We would make different choices Heed different voices from those we do If we knew If we knew When it's through We'll stare at the truth It will all come before us To haunt or reward us Things we do If we knew If we knew We're never Alone No matter where we are Or how far We go There's always One who cares Who's near Every soul If we only knew One by one We'll come home Be together One by one We'll come home Where we'll stay There's a star Star in 
living thing Sparks tempt, fingers singe When thankful sipping turns to midnight binge Falls and gets up some which realize
They've got Say praise be God He is God All are His servants And all the by his bidding